Once upon a time, now this is in France, there's a young woman who's supposed to go to a convent but falls in love with a poor student instead. But she's not so sure that she's cut out for a life of poverty. So she leaves the broke student for an old rich guy. Gets sad, goes back to the student, gets thrown in jail, and then a short time later, she's dead. Hi, I'm Mike Shobe. I don't know a lot about opera, but I do want to learn. And even more than that, I want to know why the fans are so bonkers for it. And that's where she comes in. She is me. I'm Marin Lazian, and I happen to love opera, so I guess you could say I'm bonkers for it. It is a technical term. Hmm. Together, we'll dig into the stories, the characters, and the music. And we'll meet people who can help us figure out what all the singing's about. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang. It's the show about opera from WQXR, and today we are a go for Puccini's Manon Lescaut. Nice one. Thank you. Joining us today on the panel is the principal stage director for Regina Opera here in New York, Linda Lair, and WQXR morning show host Jeff Spurgeon. Thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's get started with the plot, characters, and the music. Where are we at the start of the show? So Act One opens in a French city called Amiens, uh, in front of this inn, which is a huge meeting place for people. And there's a lot of people milling around, including a bunch of students. Now, so, are these like college students, high school students, preschoolers? Yeah. What are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, they're college students. Okay. It's a big thing. It's like waiting for... Uh, it's a big crowd scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's like waiting for the coach to come in, and then you look and see who's there. Are oh, there any the celebrities? Is there anybody is. cool that's <laughs> coming in? Um, and you have, so there's this one guy, Edmundo, and he's, he's talking to all the other students, and they're kind of making fun of this other guy, Descrieux, who is the, the central, one of the central characters in this opera. He's a tenor. And basically, when this opens up, Descrieux is, is like, he's the nose to the grindstone student, very idealistic. And so when he's struck a heap by Manon when he sees her, all of his friends are delighted because he's never shown an interest in a woman like this before. So they kind of, like, push on and... and uh, egg him on a little egg bit. Egg him on a little bit. Yeah. So he's kind of like, I mean, we're all nerds here. He's kind of like a nerd? He's definitely a nerd. Right. Very studious. I like him already. Yeah, me too. Nice. He's my fave. So at some point, a carriage comes onto the scene, and Menolesco, the title character, steps out with her brother, Lesco, and this old rich guy, Geronte. And Degrio sees her and falls instantly in love. It's like he has not been attracted to a single woman until he sees this one. And he, he approaches her and he asks if she'll meet him later that, that day to talk some more. So this is like the first big thing that happens in the opera? Yeah. The this two of is, them meet? This is, this is the first real moment. And in fact, the first really great musical moment comes out of it too because i was gonna say like everything must stop here and they must sing something right everything definitely stops it's it's a frozen moment in time and he sings a, a love song for her called uh donna non vidi mai should we listen to some of it yeah let's check it out okay Oh, 
Well, I'm practically in love with her myself, especially uh, the way Pavarotti sang it. She uh, sounds hot. Uh, and he sounds hot. So, th- yes, that was Pavarotti. King um, of the high seas. King of the high seas. <laughs> Just like a pirate. <laughs> um, with James Levine conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. That's all we mm-hmm. can get? <laughs> <laughs> you make yes. do with what you have. <laughs> we'll try to do better next week. Cool. Cool. So, okay. So now they met and... They're not quite in love yet, but they're like, they're going to like date. What's the deal? What's going on? So they met. So they, they have a, a date set up for later that day. Okay, don't they, rush them. They swiped right. They swiped right. Is it right? I don't know. Okay, I don't know either. I've, I've been married for a really long time. We've never used Tinder. <laughs> they swiped the right way. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. So there's a moment um, either right before they meet or right after they meet where Lescaut, who is her brother, is taking her to a convent. But really, he's going to uh, sell her out to help Durante kidnap her. Is that is that right? Yes. Well, so that's totally weird. Like, well, like, hey, I'm going to take you to be a nun. But really, let let's put it this way: um, there was something called the demi mondaine in this time period, and like our celebrity culture, like the Kardashians and all of that, is kind of a parallel, but not really, and. Very early on, you know, he's he's already angling for Durante because not only is she going to have a good life, and, and he does love her, his sister, strange as this may seem, as he's pimping her out, <laughs> uh, but also he'll have a good life too. And if she goes to the convent, and there's kind of the, this hint that she's been in some trouble before, which is why the father is sending her to the convent, mm. and the brother, in a weird sort of way, actually wants a better life for her. So she has two choices. She goes to the convent and gets cloistered away. Mm-hmm. That's one version of a better life. Yes. And the other version of a better life is, let me introduce you to this old guy who's got a lot of money. He'll take good care of you. And the family connections might not hurt us either. Fair exactly. En- fair enough? Exactly. Yeah. So she uh, actually decides to go a third route, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Am I right? <laughs> she does. She, she agrees to meet Degria um, later that day. Um, so she obviously is at least intrigued, if not yet smitten with him. I don't think she's a big fan of the convent either. <laughs> Though she's not aware of the plot with her brother and Gerante at this point. Right. But that's the plan. She doesn't know about it, but Degria hears of it. So now he knows that she's going to be whisked away. And when they do, in fact, meet up later, he, he spills all the beans. And he says, you know what? Run away with me instead. Let's go to Paris. Forget that guy. You don't want to live with him. And he convinces her to to run away with him. Did it take a lot of convincing? Was she like on the fence? Like, hmm, maybe I should be a nun or maybe I should be a mistress or maybe I should follow this dude who I like. Well, you know, she does the requisite, uh, what? Flee? The two of us? But ultimately, I think it's it seems to be her best option at the time. So as I said, Degria spills the beans. He lets Menon know about the plan to make her Gerante's mistress. And guess what happens next? Hmm. They sing about it? Correct. Let's listen. All right. Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fuggiamo! Fuggiamo, fu
All right, so those two kids are out of here. And not only that, they stole Durante's carriage, the carriage that he was about to get into to whisk men on away. And he, he comes out, I think he was drinking and playing cards or something, and he comes out and he realizes that not only is his girl gone, but his carriage is gone too, and he is pissed. Oh, that is harsh. Wait, they, they steal the man's ride? They steal his ride oh, and man. his girl. Wow. Wow. Okay, so uh, they're on the run. They're on the run. Grand theft carriage. Yep. And and Durante's first impulse, naturally, is to go after them. He he wants his stuff back. But I would too. You of course you I would. Love my car. But Lesko steps in and says, "You know what? Hold hold on. It's going to be okay because they don't have any money. They're going to get there. They're going to spend whatever they do have. And Menon does not want to live a life of poverty, so she'll be back." She'll be back, bro. You mm. wait. Cash is king, huh? Cash is king. And that's the end of Act 1. So Act 2 starts. Now are we in Paris? We are in Paris, but we're not with Degria. She f- she fled with him, but some time has elapsed, and we're in Paris, but we're at Gerante's house. Do so- we know what happened to the carriage? <laughs> I'm dying to know. We don't. Oh. Let's assume he got it back. All right, that's cool. He's a determined guy. All right, so we're we're in Paris. We're at Gerante's house. We have no idea what happened to the carriage. And? And Manon is sitting at her dressing table in this gorgeous room. She's obviously living a life of total luxury now. She's having her hair done. She's surrounded by jewelry and all of these really expensive things. She must be stoked. You'd think so. I would. You would. But she's not. <gasps> And we learn that when her brother Lesko comes to visit her. And he notices. He notices that she doesn't look happy. And she explains that she has all of these gorgeous things, but she doesn't have the love and the passion that she shared with Decria. And, of course, she sings about it. <laughs> and what's what's so beautiful about that, too? Again, it's one of these little quiet cinematic moments where she's being being one of the few times she's being so honest about her life. And this whole thing about that I was used to a voluptuous caress and now I have something totally different.
that's beautiful. That's Puccini. That's amazing. Yep. So we just heard the wonderful soprano Mirella Freni again with Pavarotti singing that duet. So she just sort of uh, spilled her guts to the audience. She's like, I'm super sad. She's so sad. She's sad. She's bored. She wants to get out of there. She doesn't like being a mistress. Yep. Is that is that what's going on? I think she just misses being in love, and her brother feels pretty sorry for her. So he, he goes off, and he kind of has a plan to to find Descrieux, who he's he's given a tip to. He's told him, you know, why don't you go and make some money by gambling? By gambling? By gambling. By, wait, he, he wasn't like, go get a job? He was like, go play some cards? Yep. That's hilarious. Yep. <laughs> but, again, that's so much of the period. Remember... It's not like us where we would go, get a job. <laughs> you know? They're like, play some cards. <laughs> Only lower class people worked. A gentleman did not work. And it would be considered shameful if a gentleman worked. And were students gentlemen? Well, Degrier is because he is a chevalier. His, his name, he's of the nobility. Mm. So it's very much, even though he's a student... He still is of the nobility, where to work is shameful. But not to gamble. But not, but to, gamble. not to gamble. That, that was perfectly, you know, that's what gentlemen did. Got it. So now that he's won some money gambling, which personally I find a little hard to believe. Yeah, but the, time, the times they were different. All right, house maybe, I guess the house didn't always win. I think that one of the opportunities that opera offers us and one of the challenges that we are presented with in opera, the opportunity is to see the world, see our own world from a different place. And the challenge is to get inside these uh, no longer existing conventions of society so that this ridiculous story, so many operas are just, on the surface, they're just ridiculous. But you go down below and they make sense. And and they are reflections of the human character. So he, he comes to see Manon at Durante's house. Mm. <laughs> That's right. And it is pretty steamy. Ooh. Um, and he gets there, and he kind of plays coy at first. Manal is, she's repentant. She throws herself at his feet. She apologizes. Yeah, but he wants to make her work for it a little bit, He's right? definitely making her work for it. He doesn't too. know if he can trust her anymore. I would, too. She walked out on him. And she's pretty, she's pretty persuasive and very seductive, and he gives in. And they sing what's kind of a hallmark Puccini love duet. You've got your tenor, you've got your soprano, and they're on fire. that's it. They sealed the deal. They're back together. But things take a turn for the worse because Gerante arrives and opens the door and catches them in the act of singing a duet. Oh, scandalous. 
And once again, he's pissed. But he doesn't, he doesn't show his hand. He leaves and he doesn't really say very much of anything. And Manon thinks that, sh- that they're free, that they got off scot-free. And this is another thing that's really kind of... You, you even, in a weird sort of way, get a little moment of sympathy for Durante. Because when he discovers the two of them together, and Manon has this devastating line to him where she says, Oh, please, please, senor, please, look at yourself. And she sits him down in the mirror. Look at yourself. And then look at the two of us. In other words, look at you, old Pastor Prime, and we're young and beautiful. <laughs> She's like gross. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then which doesn't help her chances in what I think it's even more of a motivation for him to go set the police on her. Well, okay. right, she, she's insulted him, too. Then. Yes. Right. So Manon and Decria think that they've gotten off scot-free, kind of, um, until Lesko comes running in and he's out of breath and looks kind of terrified and finally they get him to explain that he's overheard that Durante has told the police what's going on and that they're coming to get Menon right now. So they there's a huge panic to get out of this house by everyone but Manon who gets a little bit distracted by all of the jewelry around that she thinks it's just a darn shame to leave behind. So she's going to rob him again. But she doesn't make it. They get caught trying to run away, right? They get caught. She's got the jewels, and that's really why she gets in trouble, because she's stealing yes. his if jewels. Yes. If she had walked away with nothing, he probably couldn't have nabbed her. Would have been all good. Yeah. Because she takes just a little bit too long collecting all of her jewels, and she gets caught. Sloppy. So we end the act with Manon in handcuffs and Decria crying her name as she gets taken away. Oof. Only she got arrested? Only she got arrested. Is it because of the jewels? Uh, maybe partially because of the jewels and also because she's a woman. Right, right, right. Right, right, that whole thing. That makes sense. So that that must be the end of something. Uh, That's the end of Act 2. All right, moving right along. Act 3. Act 3. Act 3, Manon has been taken to a place near a harbor. She is behind bars, and she's going to be deported to America. In fact, to Louisiana. Wait, that's punishment? She's got to go, like, spend her days in New Orleans? Well, what happened at that time is abandoned women and criminals were sent to the colonies. In this case, Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. So that doesn't they, sound that bad, actually. Well, nineteenth <laughs> century. Yeah, that was way before air yeah, conditioning. <laughs> so you got to remember the mosquito problem. There, there were no screen doors. It was trickier than you might well, imagine. Well, they, they were being sent to to be indentured servants. So you you were working off your crime. Mm. So things aren't looking so good for her. And Lesko and Decria show up, and they're trying to plan her rescue. They even bribe a guard so that they have a chance to talk to her. And there's this scene where Degria gets up to her. She's behind these iron bars. And it, it's this heart-wrenching love scene where they sing their goodbyes. <laughs> So all the women 
are escorted onto the ship, and Degria sees the captain and suddenly has this moment of inspiration. He's like, you know what? I'm getting on that ship. I am following that woman to whatever awaits her. And he he pleads with this captain saying that he absolutely cannot live without Menon. That moment where he throws down his sword and begs to be taken on as a cabin boy to go with her. To an audience of that time, that was so powerful because he's, in a sense, giving up his nobility to be with this woman. And lo and behold, the captain agrees. Degria boards the ship, and they're off to America. And that brings us to Act 4. We're in Louisiana. Some time has passed. There's actually been, between Act 3 and Act 4, there's actually two years have passed. And... There's a whole section within Louisiana where she and Degree have actually been doing well. They're living together as man and wife. I think he's working for the governor. I can't remember all the details. But what happens is the governor's son falls in love with Manon, and the governor tells him, you've got to leave her alone. They're married. You can't do anything. But then they somehow find out that they are not married, at which point, well, the governor says, well, go for her, son. She's fair game. And he and Degria fight a duel. And he's wounded in the duel, the son of the governor. But Degria thinks he's killed him. So they escape in the night. Into the desert. Into the desert, again, for which they are woefully unprepared. No water. No water, yes. No skills to speak yeah. of. <laughs> and at the end of the book, after she's died, he, he buries her in the desert, and he's there basically waiting to die himself. And the people from the town come to find him and tell him that he hasn't killed the guy. And there's this whole passage describing how they lovingly take him back to the town and nurse him back to health, and he lives out his life. But, of course, she's that's dead, not, that's, buried in the desert. That's yes. not cool. Oh, it's just... It's just <laughs> what a tragedy. Yeah, I, I don't know. The, the misogyny in these pieces it, it just <laughs> bothers me. But it's how the world was, and, and to an extent how the world is. So you can use this opera to reflect on... It's another way to use opera to reflect on the world that we live in now. That's why these pieces, if you dig into them, have so much to offer. So a couple years have passed, and things are not looking good for Menel. She's tired, she's thirsty, she can barely walk, and she's being propped up by Degria as they walk through the supposed desert of Louisiana. And of course, you know, before she dies, she sings the most famous aria from the opera. Yes, uh, Sola Perduta Abandonata. Sounds heartbreaking. Marin, what's going on there? Well, first of all, I have chills and always do <laughs> yes. um, when I listen to that. Um, but she, you know, she has sent Degria off to find some water. He, he has offered to go off and find her some water. 
Um, and she's just sort of there on, on the desert ground, um, feeling alone and abandoned um, and forgotten in her way. And of course, Degria loves her and is, is there to try to save her. But in some broader sense, she just has this sense of being this abandoned, forgotten person. Um, and she, she goes on to say that she doesn't want to die, but this is effectively her song of complete despair mm-hmm. um, as she waits for help, um, which comes but too late. Yes, and she, she's also, the structure of this aria is so amazing because she she gets to this point where she literally has like this heart cry of, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And this repeats through it till it becomes very, I don't want to die, but she's... She's beginning to give up. She's beginning to give up, but you can also, in the way it's structured, you can hear her body giving up. And talk about something to solve a staging problem. Because you can't have her running around the stage. She can barely move at this point. And she's like, she, she, so the singer, while producing this gorgeous sound, still has to, to give the feeling of your throat closing, closing, the sandpaper on your tongue. And we heard a touch of that in Franey's yes, just exactly. a moment ago. So yes. she was doing that. Yeah. I got to say, it's, uh, it's kind of mind-blowing to imagine anybody singing that aria while lying flat on her back. <laughs> That's crazy. Yep. All right. Well, there you have it. A little Manon Let's Go Cheat Sheet, if you will. And coming up, we're going to grill Linda on what it is exactly an opera stage director does. There's more He Sang, She Sang in a minute. Welcome back to He Sang, She Sang. Mike Schaub here with Marin Lazian, Jeff Spurgeon, and Linda Lair. Linda, you direct operas. What exactly does that mean? Your first job as a director is to make the structure of the piece clear. And by that, I mean the theatrical structure. So the audience has to understand who's in love with who. What do they want? Um, There needs to be a clear line in the blocking of the scene so you understand the action of the scene. Then from there, if there's any other elements you want to add that something about it as a director strikes something for you, so you want to maybe either do a switch of time period or do something else, then you can add that on. But first, you must understand and make the characters clear and the blocking clear. And close to that is also you're looking at your singer, you're breathing with your singer while they're singing, so you understand their interpretation because it's it's the... Ultimately, again, it's those two singers. It's that tenor and that soprano in this scene on the stage and what they're communicating with each other that makes it totally alive. I wanted to ask you this, and it's so great to have an opera director here to speak about this, is how do you, where do you start? Do you start with the singers and make sure that they understand what's, what's already there in the, in, in the libretto? Or do how do you work with them to make sure that you are on the same page as them? Well, that's actually very interesting. And like in theater, uh, 99% of your job is casting. And by, by that, I mean it's not only finding the, the right voice for the right part. It's looking at your cast. Now, at Regina Opera, we double cast. So we have two of each part, and then you're looking at that and going, who really clicks with whom? Both, both vocally and emotionally. And... Then from there, 
what are the technical aspects of the piece that have to be dealt with? And in that that point, uh, when I first started directing, one of the things I did was I would always meet with my conductors, because I was still learning about the form, and have them conduct me through the score. Because you need to know what technical aspects may come up for cueing in the orchestra, a certain difficulty of a phrase or whatever. So you're aware of them so that you find the graceful way without making it too obvious to put the singer in the best position for that. And then, so you need to be aware of those things, and then from there you're going for your your emotional depth. So sometimes directing, especially in a piece like this, is making sure you get out of the way of the singer. Spoken like a very good director. <laughs> uh, as a singer, I've been in the room many, many a time where a director is uh, given a direction, given some sort of uh, movement or stage stagecraft-related direction, and the singer says, I just have to be looking at the conductor right now. That's a, it's a tricky entrance. It's a cue that I need. My advice to young directors has always been the man with the stick or the woman with the stick will do what they need to do. Find out what they're doing first and save yourself a lot of grief. <laughs> You know, because you have you have to deal, and this is why I have such immense respect for singers, because you are dealing with with so many technical aspects that have to happen, and at the same time you have to be in the moment feeling it. But you have to deal with things like, okay, I need to take this phrase this way and be looking at the con- conductor at this point because he has to bring the string section in. You know, so there's an immense amount of information they're dealing with to do their job. And I always feel like, for the women, too, they also have to not step on their dresses <laughs> most of the time. That's so, one of the trickiest parts, especially <laughs> when you're moving from sitting down to standing yeah. up. Right, right. So so you're right. That's a great point, Linda. And And for as weird as opera singing is as an art form, it's incredibly complex and incredibly technical. And then, of course, the payoff, though, is when all of these elements come together, it's just so spectacular for you as an audience member. Uh, it's so true. When you have these amazing soloists in this orchestra and a, and a great chorus all in the zone, there's just nothing like it. I can't wait to hear it on Saturday. Coming up in a minute, one of the sopranos performing the role of Manon Lescaut at the Met this season, the great Anna Netrebko. Welcome back. We have a really, really big get for the first episode of He Sang, She Sang. Marin, what are we about to listen to? Well, I had a chance to go up to the Met to chat with Anna Netrebko, who's starring in the opera right now. And she thinks that Manon maybe gets a bad rap for leaving De Gria for the rich Durante. You know what? If you read the Prévost novel, you will see, you will understand what she was actually absolutely not that bad. She'd been just doing what she has to do. There was no other choice, in, especially in the 18th century for the poor girl who has nothing. And usually she was guided by her brother or by some other young rich man or old rich man. And she just really took her decision because she has to do that. And also sometimes it's written what when they already lived together with the Grieux and the brother and they was in the misery. Sometimes she just quietly disappears for the time and appears back with the money. And de Griot knew that, you know. And I think this is very sad. 
this is what the the time and society and the situation make to the woman. In the opera, it's a little bit different. Okay, especially in the Massenet opera, that is, she's a really bad girl, and it's a pleasure to play her. It's a plenty for the actress to enjoy. Uh, in Puccini, yes, she's she's different because of the music. The music it's much more serious, melancholic already from the beginning, and um, yeah. But of course, she did something bad, uh, wanting to have everything and love and money and success. I mean, from one side is bad, from the other side, I can understand that. Yeah, we all can. Uh, yeah, probably, I think right? we all can understand that. Yeah. It would be great to have everything. And actually speaking about women and her specifically, but women's options at that time, so many of Puccini's heroines suffered terrible, terrible fates. You know, they, yeah, they die. They're sick. Yeah. Unfortunately, do you think he was sympathetic to those women? Do you think the way that he tells the stories with the music tells I think us? So. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, from the Puccini music, I understand completely what he adores the character it's in every single musical phrase there and what is he giving to her in the last act is just a killer Does that make you adore the character too as you're, <laughs> as you're learning and singing? This, uh, uh, for me, it's one of the most amazing musics and it takes everything out from me, everything. I'm completely, by the end of the performance, without the voice, without any power because I'm using so much physical power, emotional power and the voice. Of course. <laughs> How do you prepare to sing this role, you know, before a performance? Not necessarily the months of preparation before mm. or even the years, but any given night before you come on to sing. How do you prepare to sing Menon Lesko? <laughs> you know, when the Maestro Muti three years ago asked me to sing this, I was absolutely sure what I would be not able because usually it's for dramatic soprano. I am not dramatic soprano. And uh, plus half of the part is written in the mezzo-soprano tessitura. I don't know why, why he did that. I think even dramatic soprano struggling with that. And for me, that was the biggest challenge of the role because the top notes and screaming through the orchestra, I have no problem with that. But to build up the middle and low register, which is plenty there, and this is really difficult for me. And still, I'm still working on this a lot. And uh, <laughs> and lots of low notes uh, has to be like shouting out there. I mean, you just uh, closing your eyes and go there. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of your favorite, or maybe your one favorite musical moment in this piece? Or you can the whole last act. It's uh, yeah, the whole from the beginning until the end. It's a pure treasure. Yeah. yeah. So for the aria in the fourth act, what's the staging like there? Are you mm. are you on the ground? Uh, the staging, yeah. Usually, I mean, they are in the desert, but. <laughs> I don't like to lay down or sitting and singing. This kind of power singing, it has to be, you know, on your feet. Yeah. And then I, I already told to the director here because the, the setting quite uncomfortable. And I told to her, and she understood me, to produce this big sound, I need to stand up. 
And so it's it's fine. It doesn't matter if you're laying down or standing. It's important how do you sound, how much emotion you're putting over there. So effectively, you're dying throughout that mm-hmm. entire act. And it is, it's such a big sing, that moment. But the interpretation has to be both powerful, but also reflect the fact that you are suffering and, mm. and about to die. How do you do that? How do you find that in your voice? Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm taking resources which I already don't have. And of course, I, I know perfectly what singing this role, I'm destroying my voice. And the same, I think, with Senor, with Degria, he has the most difficult role. And every performance, I know what I'm shortening my career with this. And that's why I'm trying not to sing it too often, because try to be careful or try to, you know, sing, oh, about the future. No, I have to be really careful with my voice. No. Are you singing this or you're not singing this or you're stepping out? Yeah, that's it. That was the choice. So why why do you choose? Why do you sing this, even though it's so hard? And because I'm crazy. Because I know what I can do it, and I know what I have a power and knowledge and intuition for that. Now, after many years of singing and some things, I know. Yes. <laughs> so this is your North American debut of this mm-hmm. role, yeah. but it's not your debut of the role. What was the first time you sang it? It's sort of a special story, three I years, think. Yeah, three years ago with Maestro Muti in Rome. Yeah. And uh, that's actually how I met my husband. Yeah, that was very special, very yeah. special. And I, of course, I love this role. And I just repeat this in this year, like four different productions. <laughs> this is the last four. <laughs> so after that, no more Manon Lisko for a while. <laughs> after that arrest. After that, I go uh, higher back to Verdi, go, gonna yeah. put my voice in the higher position. To, to settle back in the, yes. in the natural place. <laughs> yes. So for Descrieux, it's mm-hmm. love at first sight when he sees Menon. When you met your husband singing this, was it, was it love at first sight for you too? No, it was actually <laughs> very slow because it was kind of like, I mean, we're not at that age anymore, you know, who can fall in love that fast. We just was more very sweet and comfortable with each other, you know, spend a lot of time on the rehearsal and that's how it's built it. Must be so much fun to sing with him. Mm. Have you sung with Marcello Alvarez before? I sang in the different productions, but not uh, Manon Lesco. And you know what? I'm very happy for him because he's absolutely amazing. He's very, very passionate uh, singer and with a beautiful voice. That's what you want out of your Décrieux. I, I need to have a good partner on the stage, especially in these big, difficult operas. Why what, is that? What does it give to you? Because it's giving me a half of the power or taking some of it. If partner is not strong, not good enough. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for all of your great insight into this character. You can hear Anna Netrebko sing the title role of Manon Lescaut this Saturday on the national radio broadcast of the Met Opera on WQXR. We've got a few minutes left in the show to help you get even more familiar with Manon Lescaut. It's time for the panel's YouTube picks. Jeff? What do you have for us? I didn't even pick an operatic production. I picked an in-concert version of the Act Two love duet between Manon and, and Degrieux. Um, it's with the Boston Symphony and Andrus Nelson's conducting. And the singers are Christine Opelias and Jonas Kaufmann. And one of the reasons I... There are several reasons. They're both great singers. Kaufmann, a huge star, anticipated in the Met production, not going to happen, so you get to sing and hear him sing a little bit. Also, these two singers, 
enjoy each other's company very clearly. And if you've wanted to see, just for your own vicarious enjoyment, either Christine Opelias or Jonas Kaufman making out with somebody, you, <laughs> you get to do that in this clip. They really get their hands and faces on each other. So they, 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 they really bring it even to this in-concert performance. So the singing's thrilling. Um, you don't have to worry about stage lights or anything. You can just watch two performers just doing what they do without any props at all except Puccini's music. Linda, how about you? Well, I have to say um, the... Act four of the 1975, I believe it's 75, Covent Garden production with Kiri Takanawa and Placino Domingo. Because her acting in that that last thing, and they're on this they're on this huge stage with nothing but sand and rocks. And it's the two of them, and emotion of the acting and her performance of that last aria. And his his whole thing when he when she dies in his arms is just so heartbreaking. <laughs> Marin, how about you? Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a performance that we had at the Green Space in September uh, with Anna Netrebko and uh, playing Menon Lesko, obviously singing Menon Lesko, and then her husband Yusuf Ivasov um, was singing De Gria, and they they performed. Much of Act Four, um, they came on. You know the the opening of the the desert scene, and then uh, Anna Netrebko sang "Sola Perduta Abandonata," which we listened to some of, um, with Brian Zeger playing the piano. But it was just this wonderful, passionate, really intimate performance um, here, basically in our in our home space, which was wonderful. But also as a precursor to her opening at the Met, um, and. I happened to be page turning, so I was on stage, hidden, but still really, really close to Anna Netrebko and Yusuf Ivazov as they were singing this, and just the the power and the dynamism um, and the sheer drama of what they brought to that performance uh, was incredible. It was also incredibly loud. Um, <laughs> they, they both have these these voices that can cut huge orchestras, and, you know, they were in this very small space, so sort of windows rattling and uh, eardrum rattling uh, sort of noises, but glorious. Mm-hmm. It was quite impressive. Our CEO was in the front row for that performance, and she was, like, ducking for cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thrill to be in the... Spectacular. It's a thrill yeah. to be in the opera house or in the green space and, and have and be pinned to the back of your chair by the power of a voice. It sounds crazy, but that's, again, one of the magical things about opera singing is you're not using any technology to do it. It's just a voice and air, but it really can. It can you can feel it pushing against you. It's you really an amazing can. experience. Yeah, it's incredible. And that's one of the things that I would really, really encourage people to do because the the broadcasts are fabulous. I think it's just fabulous that they do that. But there is, even if you're going just to your local opera community or, you know, a small space or something, there is something about the physicality of being in that space with a live orchestra, with live singers, and no amplification or engineering happening that is just visceral. I also chose Jonas Kaufman um, singing Donna Non Vidi Mai with the Royal Opera from uh, 2014. And um, I was just really struck with uh, not only his passion, but how casual he was in his 
and his powerful singing. He was like just belting these incredible notes while like swinging around a, a signpost and kind of like <laughs> bobbing his head back and forth while holding out, you know, a really high note for a tenor. Um, it just, that one really, uh, I was a little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Check out the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org to see our YouTube pics. Thank you, Jeff Spurgeon and Linda Lair, for being here today. It was great. It was fabulous. Join us next week when we dig into L'Amour de Loin. He Sang, She Sang is a WQXR production. I'm Mike Schaub. And I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.